So in the neoliberal age, we have been increasingly told that we are selfish human beings that only want to maximize our own utility and so on. And this has been said so much that people now start to believe this because this has been the economists talking, the politicians talking. This has been the public discourse for 30, 40 years. Hi, everybody. I don't have the best podcasting voice, but I wanted to sneak it in here anyway. You're listening to episode two of Toyan Podcast Village. Uh, and for this week's episode, we're going to play a live recording of a lecture we had here in front of an absolutely full Toyan startup village. And we invited our friend Siri, who invited her friend Tune. Tune is an environmental activist based in Vienna. And she did a talk about degrowth and ecological economics. So it's pretty long, but it's so inspiring and it's pretty accessible. So just stay with it and enjoy. is an environmental activist who is originally Norwegian, but now based in Vienna. She has degrees in human uh, geography and ecological economy. And she also has a PhD in economy from the University in Vienna for economy and business. Uh, she has worked for many years with environmental policy making, uh, but now she works as an independent researcher and lecturer and writer and also as a yoga teacher, which I feel very beautifully kind of illustrate this uh, interconnected weave of topics that, uh, that New Story Hub are exploring. However, it's not yoga she's going to speak about today. She's going to speak on the topic of degrowth and ecological economy. And we are very grateful to have her here. I know that she did some like rearrangement uh, in her schedule for her very brief visit in Oslo to be able to be here with us. So please give her a very warm welcome. So, Oh yeah, so I wanted, because I have no idea who the public is, and this is the, the interesting thing about these Facebook events. So I'm just a bit curious to know um, whether there are any economists here. Can you raise your hand if you're an economist? Okay, if you... Good, okay. So I'm trying to not to speak too technical. As an ecological economist, uh, it's easier at the outset to speak a language that is more understandable for normal people uh, but still I will have to um, enter a little bit into some of the science which is underlying the, the perspective that you will hear about. Anyway what I will tr try to do is um, to talk first uh, give a kind of a problem di diagnosis I mean I assume you are here because you already 
feel that the environmental crisis, the social crisis, the financial crisis somehow um, affect you personally or emotionally in terms of where the world is going. So I'm not going to go too much into detail about, you know, give you numbers about the climate change and how it can happen and so on. I assume you're on board, so I don't need to do all that. But still, um, look from an ecological economics point of view about how these things are interconnected, environmental problems, distributional issues, and uh, economic growth. And also discuss a bit how the economy functions. And then the second part about visions for society links more to the degrowth uh, movement and their theory and literature and so on. So first, for those of you who are not economists, and maybe for the economists as well, um, this is just a question that I'm posing so that you can have it in the back of your mind because often there are specific perceptions about what economics is. Lots of people tell me they are not interested in economics um, mm -hmm. because economics seems to be something about profit or saving or efficiency and it's not part of their world. Um, but there are many ways that one can pursue, or at least some different ways to, to think about what economics is and what the object of economics is. So economics can actually be a science about material provisioning for human beings. How do we, um, how do we fulfill our basic material needs? This is, could be one approach to study economics. Uh, it can also be about production and consumption, maybe distribution. But the common definition uh, of economics, which is the one used by the dominant uh, economic theory today, um, it's the one that I have quoted here. It basically focuses on human behavior and on how humans behave in situations of scarcity of resources. And therefore, it's also concerned with efficiency about everything. And this is a different kind of um, perspective than uh, ecological economics, which is concerned about sustainability as an overall goal, goal for how the economy should uh, could and should operate. Okay, so I will start with uh, the ecological economic embedding uh, or the view of the economy. So we do not think about the economy as a system with consumers and producers who, who exchange goods and, and services to achieve maximum utility or profit. It's rather this kind of first uh, illustration of how the economy works. And the basic thing here is that society and the economy is embedded in a biophysical reality and a physical reality outside of that, which means that this has some certain implications. One thing is that it means that one can consider all economic processes as natural processes. So it's not, the money, econ money economy is not so interesting, but it's really the stream of natural uh, materials, energy materials through the economy, which is of interest. Um, the other thing is that when we illustrate it with these circles, it means that it also shows the dependency of certain spheres to other spheres. And the more you get 
the inner circles are more dependent on the outer circles, but this also means that they have to relate to the laws of the outer circles. I'll go back. So society has to is embedded in the biophysical reality. It has to um, adjust to the laws of that world, but there is also it also has its own laws or functioning. So it's more complex. So the further in you get, the more complexity, because it relates to several layers of realms somehow. Um, and then, of course, it's important to understand the interdependencies and feedback loops in the system. And uh, most of all, the importance is that uh, the human uh, economy ultimately um, must be about the life-supporting... It depends on life-supporting systems of nature, and we should not exclude that from the main study of the economy. So this is a way that um, ecological economists also perceive this uh, picture that I said about streams of material and energy uh, as an economy. So we can think about it as a metabolism, the metabolism of an, of an organism, but here we have the metabolism of society. And this means that there is always energy, materials um, that go into a production of something. And on the other side, there is always something coming out. So there is always an input and an output. And this is not, the output is not just a random externality that sometimes happens. It's part of the whole production process. There are always an output. And these are, in general, waste products. So we can also think um, about thermodynamics and link thermodynamics to this picture, because this is the most scientific I will get in this talk, in terms of uh, these kind of complicated laws. But the point here is that energy and mass, which goes on the input side into the economy, into the production process, cannot be destroyed or um, created. So this means that there will, um, whatever we extract from, from the Earth has to go back to the Earth somehow, but it, in a transformed state. And this is the important thing here, that uh, from this perspective, we know that pollution is pervasive in the economy and in, in our surroundings, because everything we do has a polluting effect. Uh, this sounds, of course, a bit um, depressing, but this is actually the case. And at the end of the talk, we will talk about what to do about that. Um, but for now, I want to talk about this serious core issue, because this means that we need to think about the quantity and quality of what we produce. There is also a second law of thermodynamics, which is called the entropy law, which is about available energy and the amount of available energy for human beings to use. Um, and this is um, really relevant in terms of many of the current solutions to our environmental and um, economic crisis. Because it means that all, not all energy is available for human use, and every time we convert something, there are losses involved, so, um, which then sets limits to efficiency and also limited recycling options. So um, you might have heard about the circular economy. It's very 
popular these days. Um, the, the government has said for sev several years already that they really uh, uh, count on the circular economy. They, I, I, ha I haven't really seen so much from the government side, but this is kind of what they really want to focus on. But there are also lots of other actors who really um, discuss this future in our hands, recently had a report on the circular economy and so on. But from this perspective, unfortunately, this is a limited solution because we always need to use energy to recycle products and um, the circular economy is very much about the materials and the energy question is kind of a bit in the background. But the, the, it also has consequences for the whole discussion about renewable energy, which some people call green or clean. Uh, and it's the same issue, at least at the level, that, level of uh, affluence that we, material affluence that we have in today's society, to produce, to replace all the fossil energy with renewable energy means that we need to um, have a lot of helping devices to do it. So we need lots of material, so we need to extract lots of more material from mines all across the world, and we know already some of the conflicts, even here in Norway, about uh, these minerals that are needed and so on. And this is the same for, not only for mobile phones, which is often what's talked about, and uh, electric cars, but it's the same for windmills, they also need materials, it's the same for solar cells. So at the level of material wealth that we are used to, um, this is very difficult. And here is an um, illustration of how humans have kind of expanded their economy. <coughs> so if you see the yellow circle is growing towards taking up more space of this outer biophysical limits, which cannot really change. They are fixed. But our economy is eat eating up more and more of the um, uh, materials of the world. So um, some people who work on social metabolism have calculated the resource use per capita per year in different kinds of cultures. And in hunter and gather culture, they used roughly one ton resources per capita per year, per person per year. In agricultural societies, three to five tons and in our industrial societies, 15 to 25. So we're not, we are not getting more efficient in those terms, right? We are just using more to have more, but we are all the time using more and we are getting, becoming more, uh, more people as well. So then there is an ethical challenge here in what we can call a full world because um, who should have the chance to drink champagne? It, there is not enough for everyone. And there is also, this is also where the money, money economy can kind of fool us a little bit uh, to think that we can just expand <coughs> the monetary cake and then distribute it more evenly. But actually, if I use the resources, then you can't. This is the nature of material resources. And the current situation is that this... Uh, the top of the champagne glass is probably even wider and uh, <laughs> not, or what you call, not as deep as here because this, these numbers are already some years old. But this is the way it's going still. But it's not only the you know, one few percent riches which is the problem because uh, actually it's the, 
it's the overconsumption in the Western world or in the rich world in general, or the global north, that we can use that concept. Um, and here again is a kind of a critique pointed towards uh, conventional economics, economic theory, which is based on uh, not just an assumption, but actually an axiom. Like this is the core basis that the whole theory spins around, that more is always better. So this is why we need to focus, this is why they say we need to focus on efficiency because people always want more. Um, and of course you can find examples of this that can support that kind of theory, but I will talk about it a bit later, that this is really, um, it's a problem for the public discourse to try to think about other solutions and other ways to do things. It is also not true for everyone, but we live in a system where this is kind of constantly pushed upon us. Um, yeah, and it's, um, it's the theory that is dominant, which is based on this limited truth. So if more is not always better, then it means we also need some economic theory that can help us distinguish between basic needs and uh, just wants or greed or luxury items. Because, as I said, if I use a resource, you cannot. So if we admit that this is how the world is, then we need to find another way to um, distribute what we have. And this is where the concept of efficiency comes in, and uh, I think this is really key to all that we are going to talk about here today. It will, it will reappear in my slides. But another important thing to understand is that um, our current wealth in the Western world, or all the wealth in the world, is really extremely dependent upon fossil fuels. And we often... Um, like to talk about that labor and productivity have increased, we work so much more smarter and so on. But really, the main reason that we have the wealth we have today and that we work uh, like we do today is that we have replaced our labor with uh, machines that work on, or some, yeah, machines or other devices that work on fossil fuels. So we have replaced our labor with energy from other sources. It's not only that we are so much smarter and quicker in what we do, of course, we have made innovations to be able to do that, but when we just focus on wealth coming from innovation, we really lose the, we forget the element that all this is based on fossil fuel, cheap and, uh, hu uh, and easy accessible fossil fuels. So if we, if we actually are serious about um, phasing out fossil fuels, then this is going to have extreme consequences. And uh, it's not going to just be replaced by new renewable energy and everything will be like before. It, that's impossible. Now, there is another side to, um, to equity and distribution than what we... Uh, shall I stand a bit more over here? Than we usually talk about. So, I'm not... Uh, or, or the ecological economics... Um, perspective is not only that we need to think about distribution amongst people in society living today, but also keeping in mind future generations, uh, keeping in mind those who, especially those at the margins of the current economic system, which are the ones who, who uh, repeatedly um, are not drawing the benefits of the 
the economic processes which are constantly being forced upon them. And what we can see today, which I think is really uh, hopefully maybe one of the indicators that can wake people up to the fact that uh, material affluence comes from somewhere, is that the amount of environmental conflicts are, is, is huge already, but it's also rising. And even the United Nations Environmental Program has raised the issue of um, killings of environmental activists. Because it is, in Europe not so much yet, but even in Europe, but really environmental conflicts are escalating. And uh, they're linked to all these resource extraction uh, activities like mining, oil drilling and so on but also to actually to setting up uh, national parks in, in other countries where we in the West would like to see nice nature preserved, where it's often the ones who actually sustained the, the, the nature who are being displaced for the sake of setting up a national park. And, but also we have this whole issue of land grabbing, which is linked to uh, what I call false solutions in terms of solving the climate crisis. So uh, offsetting schemes so that when you fly somewhere, you can feel a bit better by paying um, a little, buying some climate uh, credits. And these uh, are often linked to offsetting programs in the South, which again are linked to grabbing land from marginalized people who are too weak to stand up, who don't understand what happens, or are just basically subject to military or paramilitary power somehow. So the main, the main solution in our part of the world to these questions, that economic growth seems to constantly be followed by um, increased environmental pressure, it's that we, we, we should decouple, and we will soon manage to decouple. And decouple mean, we can decouple so that the eco economy can con continue to grow and the environmental pressure goes down. And in this way, we achieve green growth. Um, and there are many reasons that people want to argue for green growth. One is just that they believe we need growth to have a good society, while others, like Jürgen Randers, for example, think that we need to, we do not, we will not get people on board on any project to save nature if we don't uh, promise growth. But the thing is that this solution has actually been on the table for a very, very long time. So it started in the 80s and the Brundtland report was a very, um, was one of the central uh, yeah, reports that launched this topic, which um, which changed actually the discourse because in the 60s and 70s everybody agreed that economic activity is really at odds with environmental protection. Uh, but then suddenly it changed into this discourse of um, we need economic growth so we can solve the environmental problems, only then can we solve them. And it's, uh, it's not a problem because we can change the content of growth. And this meant that we should restructure, so we should go from industry to more service uh, sector activities and the knowledge economy and so on. And then we should uh, be more re resource efficient. Okay, so this has been 40 years of uh, solution now, but this is not happening. And one of the reasons, which I have not mentioned before, is a specific effect which is worth uh, not, uh, knowing about, which is the fact that 
it's important because politicians and uh, lots of policymakers always talk about efficiency. But the thing is that what happens if we don't cap our resource outtake in the first place is that every time we produce something more efficiently, the um, energy or material saved just goes into uh, another product or, and we consume more. You can see that it's the same with cars, for example. We get more energy efficient cars, but we just drive more than before. And if we don't cap our resource consumption in the first place, then this is what happens. An efficiency has no, is, is useless basically. So what to do then? Well, I think the first thing to do is to, to acknowledge the root of the problems and that uh, the current things we have tried are not working. There are thermodynamic laws that nobody are really challenging. So that's not the reason why uh, people would not support this. It's just rather not discussed or tried to avoid it. And we need to set limits for physical outtake of resources because of the rebound effect that I just showed. If not, all efficiency improvements will just go back to the economy or into the production. And then the third thing, which I didn't touch on much uh, so far, is that we need to change the institutions of the economy. And by that, by institutions here, I mean uh, things like norms and rules, processes that are, that are institutionalized. Because these things are what shapes our behavior and economic behavior as well. So, the, so in the neoliberal age, we have been increasingly told that we are selfish human beings that only want to maximize our own utility and so on. And this has been said so much that people now start to believe this because this has been the economists talking, the politicians talking. This has been the public discourse for 30, 40 years. But this is basically something that is then reinforced by the fact that we uh, make, make politics and rules and laws that feed this. So um, it's important to remember that we still live in societies with, where norms operate and uh, these can be changed. But uh, they are not changed by the current, uh, the, the current neoliberal way of talking about the human being. So just to sum up what ecological economics is about, on the one hand that there is a biophysical perspective on the economy and on the other hand that it explicitly deals with ethical issues. Now this is not really unique, but it's uh, unique that it's um, being expressed because mainstream economics, for example, also is based on a certain kind of value theory, but usually it's just considered the only thing there is, so it's not necessarily... Um, discussed. Okay, so what are the alternatives to this system that we currently have? And um, um, the, the title for this talk was alternatives, other, what was it, degrowth and other economic alternatives. Now, I'm, I'm mostly going to talk about degrowth, but there is, as you will see, there's lots of other movements feeding into this kind of broader umbrella movement. Um, and this is a little illustration of uh, some of the people in this movement and how they are thinking and feeling. It's, um, it's not about reducing our material um, affluence 
to be sad and depressed and live a very hard life. They're very happily walking down this hill on their bike and dancing and smiling. And this is kind of the idea that really we can live with much less. And if we at the same time change many of the other things of our society, maybe we can have a, a more happy life. So first of all, it's about countering the idea that growth is the answer to our economic crisis or to any crisis. Growth is not the answer. And we need a long-term solution to the current problems anyway. So even as a short-term solution, this is a no-go. But it's also uh, a, like a really radical critique of societal transformation. So it's not about just reducing material um, wealth. And, uh, and most importantly, the degrowth movement today says that we are in a current crisis situation anyway and things are changing. So we don't really have a choice about whether we want uh, radical change. There, there will be radical change. But we can choose to, tr to try to plan for a downscaling of the economy while at the same time keeping social issues in mind and trying to um, you know, um, steer the, the things which might be problematic as we try to degrow the economy. Because typically the unemployment question always com comes up, but um, society can take that upon itself to, to do something about those who get unemployed or, or distribute jobs, or there are many ways to handle that issue. So what is it uh, more concretely? Well. Yes, about reduced consumption, but also about more commons instead of private property. So like this place, I assume, is some kind of common. New ways of corporations, like this place. Um, creating human relations. I mean, typically, this is one of the things that capitalism and commercialization does, is that it removes the human relations because you can exchange things with money and you don't even need to know where things come from. So uh, in, um, in this way, working, working together, but also buying from uh, farmer's market, so you have a closer connection between buyer and seller, or even doing things together without wage labor, of course. And then another part of it is to, to um, inspire or aligned with the Occupy movement is this um, critique of the current way that we practice democracy. So instead of thinking it's okay that we have elections every four years and you know if people only need to vote green then everything will be fine. Um, it's really a project for, uh, for real democracy, real participatory democracy. Also in the sense of more aut autonomy. So this goes a bit, for example, against what many people who argue for green growth in the kind of um, Green New Deal way um, support, because this is more arguing to, to have regulation, yes, but not a strong state that overrules, rather the opposite. So no uh, romanticizing China, like certain people say. China, China is the best example of how you can have a flourishing capitalist economy and also, you know, efficient uh, um, bureaucracy 
or efficient ruling. This is, this is um, something that not everybody says who thinks it's great, but it's also explicitly said by some people who want to just have a stronger state and, and a bit back to the 60s in Norway with the strong Labour Party and so on. So in this respect, Degroth is quite an anarchistic or anarchistically inspired uh, movement. But some of the things that they also argue for is um, uh, worker-owned companies or worker-managed uh, companies, which actually was on the on the table, um, or it was it was almost it almost was voted through somehow in the 70s in Sweden. There was uh, an idea that even the, the Social Democrats supported that co that companies who had more than 200 employees should be uh, managed by the employees or the workers. And this might seem extremely radical today, but it was almost voted through in the 70s. Uh, so there, are, there have been many ideas throughout the years that we can, can um, learn from and try to reinvigorate. Yeah, and then finally, a new mentality. Of course, this is actually um, very important to stress because many people who hear the word degrowth think it's just to have less material stuff. But um, it started in France where decroissance doesn't really mean uh, down or less, but it's just like a, a counter word. So it's really a kind of a counter movement, a provocative word to get people to think so that we can reconsider what we really want with our world and be part of creating the world that we want. And this, of course, uh, needs a new mentality instead of us being just part of what the system that we are already part of without, without questioning it, which is the growth economy. Um, so this is kind of the degrowth uh, picture of what's wrong with the current system. The current model produces poverty, it produces inequality and losers, it degrades and destroys nature, and still it doesn't lead to happiness. And this, so this is kind of the other part of the picture which we maybe feel more in countries like Norway or Scandinavia, um, that despite that we should really be happy and satisfied and many people feel they should, there, there are lots of other things which are not going so well in the society. So stress is one thing, but also loneliness on the other hand, but, and also this kind of meaningless feeling. Uh, you might have heard about the, the David Graeber, who is one of the Occupy movement's uh, figureheads, who also who has written a book about bullshit jobs, where he's, he calls them bullshit jobs, and he's done a... Um, interviewed lots of people and asked them whether they think that their job contributes uh, positively to the world and then what he finds out or not and then what he says is that more than half of the people that he interviewed think that they could that their job either contributes negatively or that it doesn't do anything so if they didn't go to work nothing would happen <laughs> I mean, this is really quite a serious, and I, I think it's uh, 
yeah, it's not strange if people feel a bit alienated to the world they live or or, or meaninglessness about their job. Am I standing too far away? No. So. All right. I just wanted to to tell quickly about the three main or cultural sources of the the movement because it's it's not a new movement. So it started in France in the 1970s, and actually it was a it happened in parallel with the Limits to Growth report from the Club of Rome, which became kind of the international mm, bestseller, while degrowth was a bit more a local or national movement. And it was more a cultural critique. So while the Limits to Growth focused a lot on the material side and was slightly technocratic in its approach, um, the, the people in France already then who started this were really cultural radical people, uh, an anthropologists, philosophers, and so on. Um, yeah, and already then they start, started to question this thing about uh, democracy, how to have real democracy, instead of just reproducing a system that one doesn't really um, feel any ownership to or any power to change. And then, of course, second, it's the environmental critique, which aligns very much with the ecological economics perspective. And thirdly, uh, a critique of development, because in those times, it was just the beginning of really uh, actively exporting the, the lifestyle or the consumer model of the West to developing countries, both through development aid, but in, uh, yeah, in several ways. And this led to, dis as many pointed out, again, anthropologists quite central here, the destruction of local subsistence systems, local cultures, um, while at the same time having the same kind of consequences as in our part of the world during the industrialization, that people live in the countryside, yes, but they have uh, a minimum of material uh, basic needs fulfilled. So it's material poverty, but it's better to live in material poverty than to live in destitution or misery in the city. Material misery, because you suddenly depend on wage labor, but you have to pay for your rent, and it's all expensive and so on. At the same time, uh, having all your social re re relations somewhere else, so you're not just in material uh, misery, but also socially and culturally miserable. And again, we see this same thing happening in many developing worlds. Even in China, despite all this uh, wording of lifting millions out of poverty, uh, China is actually forcing people to, not, it's not even voluntary, if one can talk about voluntary, but physically forcing people to move from the countryside into the city create, to create many of these industrial uh, new cities that they have planned. Yeah, and at the same time, we have been spreading this idea of the rational man, what it is to be rational and efficient and instrumental rationality and so on. But uh, the degrowth movement is not a, a movement that wants to uh, preach solutions. So the point is just to try and get a discussion about these things, and there can be different ways to solve it and different ways to try to solve it or to deal with it. Um, because there is a clear vision that there are alternatives both to our current economy, 
the cap capitalism, to the wider kind of system, modern system we live in, to green growth, so all these things that are not being questioned today. This is from Vienna, where degrowth people and climate activists have, have joined forces, so it's quite a, a strong community of both, arguing for system change instead of climbing cha climate change. And um, just to show a bit more the kind of people who are part of this movement, um, because it started quite an intellectual, yeah, quite inte as an intellectual movement in France, but people from all kinds of, uh, yeah, so, um, activist groups are joining, both environmental justice, climate justice, climate change kind of movements from the more activist side, or in the Gelände, which is like a really hard or tough uh, coal, anti-coal movement in Germany who, who are a bit like Extinction Rebellion going in and telling what they really think and getting constantly beaten up by the police and jailed and so on. Uh, two more nice people who do permaculture or agroecology and who doesn't really fight so much in the streets or, um, yeah, cyclists, anti-car activists, people who do food cooperatives, anti-advertisement campaigners, and so on. Everyone who is trying to build something new. Um, and there have already been some international conferences, which, have, which are quite interesting because they try to um, to uh, combine activism and so, uh, social organizations with, with research. And also next time in Manchester next year, there will be a combined ecological economics and degrowth conference. And then some of the, uh, the thing that is interesting, it is not just um, being against something or manifesting, but also trying to build alternatives. So, uh, there are the research activists and so on, but there are also lots of social experiments going on. And uh, this, is, this goes under another name called Notopias. So try to, despite that the system is still not as we believe, even many people say the system cannot really uh, generate the change we want. It's not possible to change it from within, but still it's possible to build examples from within. This is how we see the utopia. We try to build it here now. So we have examples, both to show people who argue it's not possible to do things different. Human beings are inherently egoistic. They cannot cooperate and blah, blah, blah. And also that there is experience. If it actually gets more attention and support from politicians, there is already something to build on that can quickly be scaled up if we we if there is some ex hands-on experience already yeah um, I didn't talk so much about uh, capitalism but uh, cap the word capitalism has popped up here a little bit and it is quite central to the critique of the current economic system so there is a belief that wage labor is a, is a problem it's a problem both because we need to um, 
sell our souls to, to get money to feed ourselves and our families, but also because we need, we, it's hard to, to fight the current system if you depend on a job. So if you stand up too much, you risk to lose your job and so on. And therefore, um, uh, a wish to create something outside of a capitalist structure, which means to shift from uh, production for exchange in the current system that to production for use, so without going through exchange. And then to de decommodify many things, um, which is also linked to avoiding the expansion of the economy all the time because of its environmental problems. And also, as I, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, commoning. Try to boost the process of commoning. And that is all for now. <laughs> I, um, I have a few questions that I, um, some, some topics that I didn't raise that I want to kind of uh, feed into a little discussion later. But shall I say it? I guess it. But we will have a little break. So. Recording again. So uh, welcome to return to your places. And I again invite Tone up uh, to lead us through the second half of the evening. You can put this down. Um, I was thinking about a bit how to do because it's good to get a discussion starting between you before we discuss in public. But now it seems like this has happened very much, so that's really good. Uh, I and I have some questions that I would like to answer you, but I, I think there were a few questions already. So maybe we could start with that, and hopefully it doesn't completely take off. Uh, if it does, I might at some point say, "Stop! Let's discuss these two issues." So I, there was at least one <laughs> one person over there. Yeah. Uh, what do we do with the, the questions? Do we have a microphone for them, or do they come here, or how do you do with the recording? Or do we not record? It's very hard for them. Hi. So I have a question regarding to. Uh, okay, I will wait. Okay, should I ask? Okay, I have a question regarding the growth because uh, in your presentation there was a part saying that uh, growth causes uh, poverty, and but but thanks to uh, growth in the world, uh, poverty is reduced reduced every year, and there is more access to uh, clean water in all around the world and. We have more life expectancy all around the world. So if we didn't have growth, we would not have those things. So uh, how do you think having the growth will um, uh, help with poverty, whereas uh, growth is helping with it? I would like to know about this. I think my slide said that um, the current system. Yeah. But anyway, the, the point is the following, that um, it, I know it is said that economic growth has lifted millions out of poverty in the last years. 
Now the argument from the degrowth people is the following, that it is not growth that lifts anything by itself. So to be able to help people out of poverty, you need a poli politics that help people out of poverty. So you can have economic growth without uh, people being in less poverty. This is completely possible. The famous old trickle-down theory, which was that when the rich get richer, a little bit trickles down on the poor, which was pushed a lot by the World Bank for several decades, was finally admitted to just be something that somebody came up with, and which is not, uh, it's not scientifically solid. So even the World Bank admitted this some years ago. So this is the point. If we want to, uh, of course, if we want to fight poverty, we need to have something to distribute to the poor. But it doesn't need to be money. It can be what the poor needs. If they need electricity, they can have electricity without economic growth. And economic growth on an aggregate level, in any case, might not do anything. So there must be a, some kind of policy in between that lifts them out of the poverty. Then, another two more arguments about that, or two more things to say. One is that lots of people, uh, I, I keep coming back to China because it's talked a lot about lately. Many people in China are not necessarily living any better than they did, even on the statistics they are now out of poverty, because they used to live in a place where they were not involved in the monetary economy, so they were poor in those terms, which is how the statist statisticians uh, measure it. They had little um, income, but they had food that they grew themselves. Then they are taken into the cities, and they and they get just above the poverty line, and then they are not poor any longer, statistically speaking. So the numbers hide a lot of things. It's not sure that you have a better life just because the statistics uh, are looking better. But of course, it m it moves people into the modern world where we where we are removed out of uh, agriculture and into the cities, and we work in the as wage laborers, and this is what lots of people believe is the good way to go. So it's a critique of that in the first place. Um, oh yeah, and another thing, which is some people who did a study in India, is, is that even the poor don't get any more. On the other hand, growth, the argument that we need growth to help the poor because we have so many people that we need to lift out of poverty is being used almost like a... Um, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> you know, when you take a person um, as hostage somehow. And it's not, it's not even, it's just rhetoric. We need growth because we care so much about the poor. It can be nothing in, nothing in that kind of saying. And the poor in India are often the ones who are fighting against being uh, pushed off their lands, against dams being built in the name of development and so on. Very often, it's really the, those communities who are still living in a different kind of culture or ec and economy who are not interested in being part of this um, growth economy. In Mexico, the same. There's not only the Zapatistas, but lots of communities all over the country who... It's not that they don't want a bit more uh, material well-being, it's just they want to do it on their own terms and not being forced into it. Okay, that was a long <laughs> answer, but it's yeah, important. Okay, so clean water supply is because somebody has a policy of clean water supply, and uh, life high, uh, high, high life expectancy is because there is a policy that addresses that, like in Cuba. I don't want to 
promote Cuba, there are other problems. But you can have a country without lots of, uh, without a high GDP and still a good health for the population. No, they don't have growth. I'm okay, but degrowth policy is a different thing than economic growth. I mean, policy and the what is actually happening is two different things. They have had a they have not had an easy economy since uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. They have not had economic growth. They have not had an official degrowth policy. I mean, this is a social movement. So no country has an official degrowth policy. But many countries have elements of what degrowth people are talking about. I mean, even Noah has elements of it in Scandinavia with public health care and so it's part of a, uh, a, di a discussion about uh, providing certain basic needs for people outside of the economy. Okay, I have a lot of notes. <laughs> I'm trying to form uh, formulate the questions. So you have been talking a lot um, about growth as uh, the growth of economy and um, and I think there was two things that were kind of um, interlinked but not separated uh, not separated enough uh, conceptually and that is the economy versus the policy and for instance when we talk about um, that we should give the poor what it needs it's it still has to be produced it's part of the GDP so it doesn't mean that we should produce less if we want to give things to the poor and the other thing is that for instance, uh, the inequality is also not about growth. It's about the policies, like how we redistribute or not dis redistribute what we have. Growth means that we have more. Um, and also, I was thinking a lot, I came from Hungary. So for me, everything that is like non-capitalist, it kind of freaks me out, of course, and uh, like, my personal experience and my my family's experience is that we can't tell the humans what to feel. And they really had all these ideals how we should be like humans. And it didn't change, like the human nature didn't really change. And it was a huge disappointment for all the Marxist people. But why not to change the incentive incentive system instead? Why not to have proper policies, for instance, for companies to to make it sure that they have an incentive to produce uh, more sustainable products that can that you can use for ten or twenty years, and then you don't have to buy a new one every second year. Okay, that was a lot. <laughs> No, no, it's fine. I think some of them go together. So, okay, first, it's not so much about, I, I don't think the general argument is to give to the poor, but just to realize that if we live in a world which is limited of resources, we need to distribute better. It's not like the, you know, it's not like the, the poor does not, the aim is to make people more equal and particip participatory, not to just give to the poor as some kind of uh, victims. But um, 
but I agree, distributional policy, you need to produce something before you can distribute. If we talk about it in our current system, for example. The problem is that, which I, di I didn't talk so much about that actually, but um, maybe I should show some more slides which I took out. <laughs> okay, because capitalism, so as you said, to criticize capitalism for you maybe means like the only other thing we've seen more or less recently in the world, which is the kind of communism, socialism in the Eastern Bloc. Um, but even if we admit that uh, those experiments uh, went very wrong, the cap if we care about poor people today in the South or the environment in the North and also uh, social problems in the north, then capitalism is a problem as I see it, and as many of the degrowth people see it, because it is dependent upon growth, and growth is linked to material and energy throughput. It is not uh, decoupled, as we have seen. So um, from this perspective, one can see it purely from this perspective that capitalism is a problem. At least it seems to be very difficult to have a capitalist system where that you can where you can have a that goes well without recurring crises because this is what happened that we get these uh, re reoccurring crises uh, with uh, regular intervals plus we are destroying the environment so from this perspective you know lots of people don't want capitalism because it cannot uh, help us solve the environmental problems and therefore, we need to look for something else. I mean, m most people are very wary of what happened in, in Hungary, for example. And in uh, 2016, there was a degrowth conference in Budapest with lots of people who had lived through it, or their parents had. And who, and still we managed to have debates about, you know, how can we take the best of it? Or uh, also, um, how can we discuss what human nature is without having to do go to the opposite ex extreme to say that people cannot uh, cooperate at all because look what happened. And, the and some people will always take the power anyway and become tyrants because look what happened in the East. So, um, yeah, so I mean, this is the situation. I People don't want uh, Eastern European communism as it was. I don't, I don't think anyone in the growth movement wants that. But there must be a way that we can, and here I think it links very nicely to the um, purpose of this um, network. You know, how can we actually nourish the best in human beings? There must be a ways, there must still be some potential to build on despite that, those experiences. And uh, most people would, who who are interested in that, do not think that uh, what's happened in the in the West in the last forty years is really nourishing the best. It's just playing to individualism and and ego and in yeah, greed and so on. And I think and just the last thing about incentives. I mean, um, I think it's possible to go a certain way with economic incentives, but. Economic incentive, I mean, you can regulate something to a certain extent, and then the question is, when do you get rid of the kind of growth dynamic in capitalism through regulation? It's not so easy to know what would be not capitalist. You know, how much do you need to, 
What is it that will take away capitalism from the system? Is it to stop having any private property? Is it, would it maybe be enough to say uh, there is a limit to private property so that people cannot uh, own lots of houses and lots of companies and companies all over the world and all these things? Maybe it's the corporate law, which means that uh, there are these units that uh, live their own life because they are considered as a human being in in a, in a judicial terms, corporations. So they are treated like human beings, but it's people behind you who are kind of <laughs> um, riping all the, the profit from it. Yeah, it's an it's a important question, but I really think there must be, I think there are potentials in humans to play to, which are beyond individualism and greed. <laughs> Um, so I thought that um, a lot of your presentation was quite at a theoretical level, and in theory, I agree, it sounds good, but, you know, how do we transition from the system that we have today, and, and what does sort of the future, uh, what does the future actually look like when we have degrowth? I mean, I find it hard to imagine so i have we have capitalism on one hand and then you know is the answer subsistence like living nomadically and growing our own food or or um you know if we do things like get rid of private property then i imagine that it becomes all of a sudden extremely chaotic so you know what is that sweet spot and what and what does that look like and and how do we get there Maybe from a strategic uh, perspective, if one wants really to grow the degrowth movements, it impor it's important to have this solution. But in general, degrowth people are not so interested to present a ready-made solution that others should say, oh yes, I want that. The whole point is, you know, we it's hard to see how to transition it out of the current system. But let's try to start to do it step by step, because if we do it too dramatically, it's it will become chaos as well. Now maybe the world will become chaos anyway, at some point soon. But or there will be wars and so on. But um, this is what will happen anyway. So why do we need to really outline this exact idea? Because what will happen in practice is always that you it becomes something else in any way. So let's just take one step at a time. Try to move towards the thing that we can possibly envision. And I don't think it's subsistence, but uh, something which is more, of course, a much more low technology agriculture, because the current agri agriculture does not fit so well with, if we look at the problems with the loss of thermodynamics and how we use the current energy available and so on. But so there are many then um, secondary effects, for example, that if we stop having such an industrial agriculture, there will be more jobs in agriculture rather than less, which is m much of the debate is about. Well, there will be no jobs because, yeah, because the last jobs there are is will be taken over by robots, and then there is nothing left except care work. And but then maybe the the care work will be taken over by robots as well. 
But if we you look at it from the other side, that we really need to downscale energy use, then there will be, yeah, lots of jobs in agriculture. That doesn't mean subsistence necessarily. Um, I guess for myself, I have some kind of uh, socialist romantic idea like Ruskin and those kinds of ideas with handicraft. And I know there is lots of criticism uh, against this, and I, I, I see that there are some points in these critiques. But that doesn't mean that we cannot try to move towards something like that. I don't see why we couldn't do it a bit more, you know. And maybe there are limits to it. It wouldn't go as far as I would wish, but maybe we can get some some way. Hi. Um, I'm going to start being very pragmatic, having working in energy, uh, how to supply energy to cities. So when you want to predict how much energy we'll need next year, you need to know how much people consume in each uh, household. So if the population gets more dependent on electricity, you will need more electricity because of new technologies. And then uh, we all agree that that needs to the growth, that that needs to, uh, we need to be less dependent on this energy or these materials. And that should be that we should all have equal access to electricity. So we all have electricity, we all have what we need, not more. And there is another thing that comes in that equation that is the amount of population. What happens when the population grows and grows and grows and you want to grow? So uh, that in a higher scale is like, how can this match if we have a physical limit in our world and we have no limit in our population growing and in the amount of years that we are going to live? So people live longer, people like population keeps growing. So which is the limit of, uh, of the population. It's like, how much are we going to grow? How much human beings are going to be around the world? Because the world has a limit, like a physical, natural limit. So how we deal with that? We're growing until we have all enough. But if the population keeps growing, in some moment, there will be a crisis where the physical limit will crash, and we won't have enough if we keep being more and more. So how do you think that population will adapt to that? Like, which is a limit of the growth, like when the population growing and the, the growing economy will cross. <laughs> okay, what I think we should do with population growth. Is that the main question? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think it's a good question. It's very uh, rarely discussed. So mainly we say that poor people need to learn how to not have so many children. And then it's good to give women education, and then it looks like the population numbers are, will level out. I'm not sure how long from now, but around nine and a half billion or something. I think this is the prediction. Um, yeah, and then the problem is, of course, that we are the ones who consume it the most, not the poor people that we try to make consume less. But um, uh, try to <laughs> try that should have less children. But um, you know, I think at least let's start a discussion about it. I think I mentioned Jürgen Randers already twice in this talk, and now I will mention him again. But this time, I think he has, I, as far as I know, he's the only one who raised this question in Norway, and I think that's very brave. Now again, I don't support his way because he says, "Look what China did." And he, uh, I think he stopped um, 
uh, advocating one-child policy, but his latest idea is that women above 50 should get an economic reward if they don't have children. And, and again, I feel, you know, is this really what will make you not have children in Norway? I mean, can we not at least start a discussion just about it instead of only saying that the population problem is a third world problem and we don't need to uh, yeah, deal with it here? And it also links to, if we would say, what would the, our country look like if we everyone got one child? It would pose lots of problems because the whole uh, pension system and care system and so on relies on it. But yeah, let's discuss that then. I mean, either we have to really reduce, we have problems enough already to reduce our material consumption, but we can at least discuss another option, which is to have less children, but what would that mean? And I think just being able to talk about it would be a good beginning. Thank you for an inspirational talk. It raised a lot of questions and issues, but I won't ask them all. I, I, think, I think one element that's missing here and that the ecological economy movement is trying to address is that we are up against some very harsh planetary boundaries. And if we don't face those critically, but also realistically, we're going to overshoot. And that's going to have catastrophic consequences. And I think that when we promote the business as usual mode of thinking, ignoring that fact, you know, we, we may wish them away, then we're in trouble. And I, I think that also addresses I absolutely understand your concern you know, with your forebears coming from one system and then feeling liberated coming into another system. Uh, but we are going to have to address this. So I, I want to, there was a book written by William Catton that disappeared out of people's awareness because it came when Reagan and Thatcher came about. And he called it Overshoot. And it has the most depressing front page of any book ever. Because he, he called his book The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. Carrying capacity, maximum permanently supportable load, cornucopian myth, euphoric belief in limitless resources, drawdown, stealing resources from the future, cargoism, delusion that technology will always save us from overshoot, growth beyond in areas, in our case the planets, carrying capacity leading to die-off. And I, I, think, I think this discussion should be illuminated by that planetary boundary, and that, that's what we should be working towards. So thank you very much for your inspirational input. It wasn't a question, I think. I, 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 and I agree, it's good that you highlight the serious sides of it, definitely. Thank you. Yes. I think you can leave the comments and it's Hi, thank you. Um, I had three questions. One is uh, slightly technical. I was wondering when you talk about growth, What's the unit of that growth? You were once talking about a, like one ton, five tons, 25 tons in the different societies. 
So I was just wondering, like, if you talk about economic growth, like, do you mean GDP or do you mean energy or d what do you mean? <coughs> or like material stuff. Um, second question that I had was also related to growth. Like, what do you think, because you talk about like material, kind of like, I realized the economy is like tied to the biophysical environment. And you were talking about decoupling. And then I was also thinking that like probably a large part of economic growth in like recent decades has been the service and financial sector, which is like not necessarily tied so much to material inputs. So I was wondering about your thoughts on that. And then thirdly, um, what, uh, what I noticed on one of your slides when you were talking about degrowth is that like a lot of these initiatives seem to center around collectives or like collaborative like organizations. So I was wondering Mm, like what is it about if there is something special about people organizing themselves in smaller groups that makes them consume less or like what's the connection between having smaller collectives as opposed to like a very large like societal system um, what's the relation to individual like the consumption per capita basically Uh, shall I start with the last first? No, I will start with the first first. Okay, the unit of growth. So I was talking about it a bit sloppily because uh, of the starting point, which I said, which is that uh, we know that from ecological economics, we know that the, uh, the economy is biophysical, so that there, maybe I didn't say it like this. Um, there is no monetary growth without a biophysical base. There must be a real economy underneath. So this is the material and physical economy. Now there can be cycles in the monetary economy, cycles a bit, but overall the, the real economy is, is the underlying material economy which, which gives us um, material wealth. So because the data shows that there is no decoupling, basically monetary growth or GDP growth and uh, environmental um, load or energy use or resource use seem to follow each other very closely. It's not so important for me to say which unit I talk about because we are talking about economic growth and, mon and um, material growth as more or less following each other. So the problem is exactly that. That is why growth is a problem whether in material or economic terms, it's more or less the same. Um, and it did not make a big difference that we converted into services, uh, increased services, which was exactly the point that was made, that we can change the content of growth. We move away from uh, production, we move towards more service industry theater, uh, massage, things like this, and it will show up on our footprint, and it doesn't, it doesn't show up on our footprint. It shows a little bit up if you look at the country, what a country produces versus what they um, emit, but if you look at what we actually import to consume, we are, st we are um, still consuming as much as before, so the move to service industry is just on top of the other consumption. And it's often even not as uh, un uh, environmentally innocent as we thought, because theaters also need, you know, buildings, energy, costumes. Uh, transport is a service industry. I mean, one of the worst uh, in environmental terms. So, yeah. So this service industry um, 
the hope that there was for service industries also. It hasn't substituted industry, it has just come, come on top. And then, yeah, that was a bit different question. So these degrowth people uh, organize themselves in collectives. Uh, I don't know whether they consume less energy. Maybe they, d I mean, I don't know any statistics about it. I don't think that is uh, the point so much to, to prove that. Maybe there are some statistics. Um, actually, I know that Fintorn Eco Village in the UK uh, calculated their footprint and found out that it wasn't as great as they thought because they uh, fly quite a bit, like many modern middle class people. And they also have a lot of guests that fly in to their... They're, they're based in northern Scotland, so it's far away from people. So most people who come for to visit or give speeches travel, and they don't travel so environmentally friendly, so this showed up on the footprint. But you know, when they uh, organize in collectives, it's to try out new ways of doing things, first and foremost, I mean, to, to try something else. In terms of many things, to consume less, to consume differently, to organize themselves differently, to not uh, to avoid all these other things from modern society as well, loneliness, lack of a relationship, um, yeah, commoning, trying out, commoning, trying to, to cooperate instead of just uh, commercializing all relationships. Well, I think I think they also try that, but I mean that is part of their whole philosophy. So, but it's all the other things as well. But maybe you're right. Maybe they should try to measure it a bit and and show whether it actually doesn't makes any difference. Like yeah, like Finland Eco Village did, and then decided that they really need to, you know, to do things different in terms of travel. Mm -hmm. I think there will be one room for one last question. Is there someone who has had their hand up several times? Yeah, okay. There we have it. Hi, I'd like to challenge you on the role of the state. Mm -hmm. um, as, uh, if you like people to go back to agriculture, you need someone to protect people's right to the land. And uh, if you want uh, greener transportation, you need someone to um, make greener uh, infrastructure, etc. Uh, so um, when when wealth and well-being is decoupled from monetary growth, uh, you need um, to protect people's rights to resources. Uh, anyways, um, and. Uh, I'm also wondering why uh, you're so skeptic to uh, the Green New Deal, because um, I think the Green New Deal, I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the strong state doing the right measures. <laughs> so, uh, um, and I think that's what the Green New Deal is about. It's, um, it's uh, inspired by the um, New Deal in, in, in the States in the 1930s, and um, um, doing this in the new way where you develop green technology. And I've uh, noticed that uh, very many groups are very skeptic to the new Green New Deal, and I'm <laughs> wondering why. Thank you. 
I haven't noticed much skepticism to the Green New Deal. <laughs> I would be interesting to know who that is, because for me it seems like it is really the thing that will save us now. And it's not that I'm against the Green New Deal, but I just think there are some things that are, um, yeah, that are not taken seriously. Like for example, that technology cannot save us because even if we have other kinds and better technologies, we still we are still placed in this dilemma that we need energy and materials to make the technology and to run it. So, you know, let's. Let's just stop always looking for technology as the solution. It doesn't mean that technology cannot be part of the solution, but it's always the main, the main uh, thing that we look for, technological hope. But the interesting thing that I find about the Green New Deal is the, um, uh, which requires, uh, well, not a strong state, but a state, is the, uh, the monetary policy saying the state doesn't, it's a myth, that the state needs to um, borrow money or take money in, in taxes to be able to pay for state projects. If you're a country with your own currency, you can print money and pay, pay for the projects. To a certain extent, you can do this without too much inflation, and this is a really interesting point, you know. The state can really uh, put things in place. So I think that is a really interesting thing worth pursuing. And there are lots of other elements. I mean, it's also a whole package of thinking about unemployment in this whole transition to a non-fossil driven economy and so on. So there are lots of good things. But unfortunately, there is this technological hope again, and there is no mention of a need to stop believing in growth. <laughs> there is still the growth imperative. Not always explicit, but nobody ever says the opposite. And some of the Green New Deal promoters are talking about this as the new way to have green growth. So I am not really against, okay, I personally, I'm not sure how I stand because I'm Norwegian, you, we grow up with a welfare state and it's, uh, it's very hard to be so critical as you, if you grow up in a, you know, in a really corrupt country with really big income differences. It is, and I've, I didn't live through it, but I've heard about the responsible labor politicians in the 50s and 60s and so on. So I believe you can have responsible politicians, but um, yeah, I am still attracted to an idea of more real democracy. And this is, uh, has not really anything to do with the environmental side, you could say, because maybe real participatory democracy will not be good for environmental <laughs> sustainability. So it's a little bit a separate issue in a way. But I think it's just the attraction in reclaiming democracy, reclaiming to be, be able to create the world instead of uh, leaving it to the state, responsible politicians that should do it for us. This kind of trying to break out of that part of it. But I'm not against somebody to protect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, uh, I don't know where I stand in terms of police and things like this. It is clear that if you, and this, uh, brings me actually to, if I may, um, because we don't have time to uh, discuss the questions that I wanted to raise, but I can still just raise them as open questions at the end, uh, which is that actually uh, fighting capitalism and economic power really puts, re puts you in a um, unpleasant position uh, 
vis-a-vis -vis the military and police force. And I think it's important to realize that it's not just about telling stories and having new visions because uh, there is an actual system in place with very many powerful actors and uh, this is not a very pleasant thing to fight, especially if you're not at the outset really keen on that kind of conflict. So, so my own position in these days <laughs> is that I realize how much the police and the military protects the current system. And this is, this is then a bit hard to envision how, uh, how this system, how, to, how we would have a system that protects you know, ownership and rules in a nicer system. Um, but uh, I think that's something to think about that, yeah, this fight is not going to be just a nice talks in a place like this. It's going to be quite hard at times. And uh, it's important to be political and not just have a nice time. <laughs> so that was a really <laughs> a bit serious and depressive ending. But uh, I think it's unavoidable, so I think it's important to say that.